0: Greetings, passengers of the Brace in Place podcast, a podcast all about the TV show Snowpiercer. I will be your conductor slash podcast host, Hillary. Be advised that this podcast does contain spoilers, so use caution as needed. In addition, be mindful that this episode also contains themes of suicide, so use discretion and care for yourself as needed. Today's episode will begin with a recap of Season 2, Episode 2, titled, Smolder to Life. We will then continue by discussing theories and unanswered questions, as well as what we hope to see in future episodes. As always, we will end with our segment, What Random, Burning, Completely Irrelevant Question About the Train Has Hillary Asked This Week?, But first, brace in place for our official entry into this episode, which begins with our recap. All right. Hello, everybody. It's Hillary, and I am here to talk about Snowpiercer, episode two of the second season. Um, Yet again, I loved this episode. You guys are going to think that I say that about every episode because I kind of do because I just really love this show. So what happened in episode two of this season? Well, we started with um, Alex and uh, Melanie, kind of coming together a little bit and Alex bringing her mom the vial of snow back. So remember, Melanie was stuck outside um, doing something with the train and noticed that a teeny tiny little snow uh, snowflake fell on her, um, on her little helmet. I want to call it a space helmet. It kind of looked like a little space suit there. And that made Melanie think, huh, I wonder if the world is warming up sooner than we thought. So she scoops up a little bit of snow and brings it inside to be tested. Uh, this has caused some turmoil and discussion on online, from what I've seen, because people say, "Why could she? Um, why did she think that that came from the sky?" As opposed to just random snow that was kicked up by the train, um, you know, moving so fast. Uh, Wouldn't she have noticed it anyway? And so the way that I see it, that train is moving hella fast and it would be pretty hard to be in the front of that engine from what I would think and be able to decipher where the snow was coming from. Whereas when she was laying on her back with her face up to the sky, there was, you know, the train wasn't moving. There was no wind from what it looked like. It was really easy for her to see that that snowflake came from the sky. So that's, that's my theory on that. Then we see Andre and Zara together in their first class uh, train car together as Zara is pregnant with Andre's baby be and Zara is, oh man, girl is just trying so hard. She is trying so hard to connect with Andre. And she says something to him as he's getting ready to leave for the day um, about being proud of him. And he kind of looks at her and says, all right, don't make this weird. Um, I liked that moment. I thought that that said a lot about Zara's intentions. And we'll see a little bit more as the episode continued about uh, where Zara's at with her family feelings towards Andre and their new baby that's uh that's coming. We find out at that point that there's been another assault on the train and uh Andre basically says all right Bess um our girl Bess Till said uh we need your help and you're going to be promoted to train detective. Uh she he grabs Bess by the arm and says we're going to go uh see Roche um And do a little ceremony to promote you to train detective. And the whole ceremony lasted about seven seconds. And uh, Roche even made a joke at the end of it saying, you know, wow, what a fancy, you know, amazing ceremony. Um, And and I I liked that scene. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, So now Bess is a trained detective. She didn't really want to be a trained detective. She said something about how she'd seen enough you know, blood and gore and death for a while. But they kind of say, you know what, tough luck, we need your help. And so she decides to help out. So now Bess is uh, the tr- the new train detective and she's walking all over the train trying to figure out who, this, um, who the newest person to be assaulted was and who might have been behind it. Then we get to see Kevin, the head of hospitality from Big Alice the other train uh, has been taken as kind of a hostage situation since at this point Melanie is still over on Big Alice being held hostage too so Kevin comes and is interrogated by Roche and Andre and Kevin gives a bit of a spiel about how much hospitality means to him and how you know there's there's agriculture there's sanitation there's this there, there there's that But then there's hospitality and hospitality comes from love. And so you can just tell that this guy lives and breathes his job and he just loves what he does and um, that it's, it's an obsession and we kind of see this come about later that this is his world um, is doing his job and he has a bit of an unhealthy attachment to Wilford, which we will also see as the episode progresses. They want to get some answers out of Kevin. They want to find out what's going on um, over in Big Alice. What's the food situation like? How many people are there? And Kevin initially says, I'm not talking. Um, You're not going to get anything out of me. And so they, uh, I thought this was kind of interesting that Andre Layton, kind of pulled from the, the bag of tricks that was used on him with the grilled cheese and the tomato soup. Uh, they pull out a plate of chicken wings for Kevin. Um, they say this is an actual chicken. Um, cause I think that, uh, Big Alice didn't have chickens anymore. I don't know if they ever did. Um, I'm assuming they did at some point, um, that it's been, uh, they used real cayenne pepper and vinegar. And you can just tell Kevin is, uh, drooling at the mouth, just looking at these things. So he starts scouring these down and just spilling his guts left and right as he's eating these chicken wings. So through this little exercise, we learned that, um, that the guy, uh, that has kind of an intolerable or excuse me, a to- an inc- a huge tolerance for the cold, um, has some kind of grafting or synthetic skin. Um, Kevin's not too sure about this. And he says, I'm not a scientist. Um, but we learned that there's something going on with this guy's skin. Um, I see Bob, and then we find out that Kevin says there are a lot of people over there there's about a hundred crew. I thought this was kind of interesting, and my husband and I actually kind of looked at each other and said he only asked about crew. he didn't ask about guests, so could there be some guests on there, some really high price ticket uh, you know high ticket people that paid a lot of money to get on Big Alice and somehow Wilford was able to keep that a secret from Melanie. Also wondering if uh, the people from those seven cars that got cut loose are on there. You know, you'd be damned to think that the Folgers would call themselves crew. They would not call themselves crew. They would call themselves guests. And so I think that, you know, that that answer that Kevin gave might not be the full story, but we'll just have to wait and see. Then we see Alex making Melanie uh, some spam or some kind of synthetic meat or something that came out of a can. It looked super gross. And Melanie and Alex and Wilford are kind of in the front of the train just chatting in the morning. And Wilford and Alex start talking about some threats that they're making to slow the train down. And basically what comes out of this discussion is that, uh, Wilford says, well, I better meet Leighton. So this starts, uh, the meeting of exchanging the hostages, Melanie and Kevin end up, uh, going back to where they need to go to, but we'll get to that. What happens after they have this meeting where, um, Wolf, Wilford and Alex and Melanie talk about how he needs to meet Leighton. Uh, how do you communicate when you're on a train like that? It's not like you can just shoot a text message to everybody and say, okay, um, we're going to do this hostage exchange. So he writes a letter and ends up putting it in a little envelope and kind of putting it under the door to the tail. Uh, nobody wants anything to do with this. Um Pike says, you know, oh, I'm not touching that, you know, we need to get hospitality down here, which I thought was pretty hilarious. So here comes Ruth, she is on point, she, this is what she lives for. She says, Oh, my gosh, this is called a communique. I've literally never heard that word. Um, a communique is what she calls it. And as she's running down the aisles of the train, having everybody get out of her way, she's saying communique, communique. So I don't know if this is um, something that here in America, we just don't don't use that word. Um, I don't know. But she is all about it. She opens up the letter, she brings it to Layton. And they kind of open it together. But Ruth is is very much the one holding the envelope and opening it up. She smells it. Um, I think she would have gotten in the bath with that letter if she could have, meaning she wanted to have an intimate moment with that letter. Um, She was all about it. She uh, and, and Layton even kind of tells her, Ruth, get on with it. So Layton is not having anything to do with this business of her uh, being so infatuated with Wilford. He's, he's over it. So then we see the actual moment um, where we do the hostage exchange, um, because the communique came back and everybody's in agreement, they're going to exchange the hostages. So you see the the door to the train, uh, the place that Snowpiercer and Big Alice are connected. You see um, that open up and um, Layton is standing there. Wilford is standing there. And uh, Wilford says something to Layton about him being King Layton. And I thought, I think that's going to be a kind of recurring theme. I think uh, Wilford is going to continue calling him King Layton. And You know who uses tactics like that? Uh, Cult leaders. Uh, When they're brainwashing, using propaganda techniques, this is something that they do. They use this kind of repetitive name calling to get in the minds of the masses of the people to get them on their side. So I think we're not we're not daring we're not done hearing Wilford calling him King Leighton. And I think it's just going to really piss Leighton off, to be honest, because he doesn't want to be king. I really don't think he does. Alex brings the vial and there's a bit of a tussle um, between the different sides, but it didn't amount to anything. Alex brings the vial and is going to give it to Melanie so that she can keep studying it. And Melanie says, come with me, come with me onto Snowpiercer and we can study it together, which I thought would have been a really cool Uh, moment for them because they're clearly both in the genius category love science love engineering love research all that stuff Um, but it's it's just way too soon and that would have been way too boring of a happy ending there so basically alex takes the vial and says you know what bitch you're seven years too late and she throws it down in a fit of teenage fury and storms off So that was uh, the hostage exchange. Melanie is back on Snowpiercer and Kevin is back on Big Alice. Melanie goes down to the mechanical area and she's having a little bit of a talk with Leighton. They're just kind of getting reacquainted with what what she missed while she was being held hostage over on the other side. And Leighton asks her a very general question. Is your daughter okay?" And I thought Jennifer Conley played this part so well, Um, just, and I talked about this on the first episode, it's these tiny little moments that these actors just pounce on, where they're so into their character. And she didn't really do much. Um, It was just a little flicker in her eye, where I really believed that this person is still coming to terms with the fact that her daughter is alive. Um, She had mourned her, she had all but buried her herself for the last several years, she, she really thought that she was gone. And it it feel it, I I felt in Melanie's position that she was still coming to terms with that. And that it was like a, a flash of surprise in her mind. And then she had to kind of get herself together and answer the question, which was how's your daughter and her answer was, "Uh, she's horrible, you know, not horrible, but she's, she's horrible to me. She's angry. She hates me. uh, She thinks I suck and all that stuff. And Leighton's answer was very appropriate. And he just said, well, she's a teenager. Maybe she would be feeling those things even if you hadn't done what you'd done. Something to think about. We then find out who the person that got assaulted was. Uh, There's just uh, some word on the train and uh, Roche found out and got Till involved. So Till goes to the hospital and finds out who the person that got uh, assaulted was and it's Light's who was kind of an important character in uh, a couple episodes of season one. She really helped with a lot of the electrical stuff and seemed like she was kind of close with the little girl whose mother and brother died. She, she's the person who was assaulted. And she says, there was multiple people attacking me. I had a bag over my head and they chopped off some of my fingers. Overall, just a, a very disgusting, horrible attack sounded very gruesome. So that's where that ended. Then we find out that Melanie has learned that there was ammonium sulfate in the snow. And she is, some, is kind of making some connections in her mind that maybe this is part of the CW7, that chemical that was released into the atmosphere to help uh, cool the earth down. And that obviously backfired. Then we see Kevin and Wilford in the bath. And so here I'll give another trigger warning here. I gave one at the beginning of the episode, but here's another one just in case people are just now tuning in. We will talk about the suicide. And so just take care of yourself and skip this part if needed. Kevin comes in and initially you think the two are pretty happy to see each other. Um, They're very cordial. They talk about how Kevin was treated over there and Wilford starts drawing a bath while this is happening, while Kevin and Wilford are in the bathroom uh, and the bath is being drawn, you see Alex starting to kind of peek at some of Wilford's books. Um, he, There's some drawings in there. It looked like some sketches, uh, some, some, you know, just words written out. Don't really know what's in there, but that kind of, I noticed that, that she's snooping around a bit. Uh, as they're talking about what it was like um, on Snowpiercer, because Kevin was just on Snowpiercer, and Wilford's never been over there. So he's just really asking a lot about what um, what was it like over there. And Kevin says it's complete chaos. Uh, people don't know where they belong or how to be, I think was something close to what he said, basically, because there's no classes, which is just... A completely an absurd idea to them um, they believe that that is what keeps the order during this time wilford says you you deserve a, a nice warm bath you're probably exhausted so go ahead and get in so you see um, kevin drop his pants take off his shirt he gets in the bath then he starts talking about um, what he ate while he was over there and he initially says no I didn't eat anything but then later on he kind of admits that um, he did have some chicken Uh, he says it was lunchtime I thought it was an appropriate choice to make but you can see Wilford something switches in his mind something switches and he's pissed um, he says, Kevin, you doing that opened up a vulnerability. It made them realize that we are hungry and that we are in a position of vulnerability. And then he also brings up the mangoes. You opened the door for that and let them in my house is what he said. Um, so he is, he's not happy with Kevin. So what he does is, uh, he gets in the bath with them. So there's clue number one that this scene is about to get real fucked up Um, he gets in the bath and so they're both two men sitting there naked which you know that's fine if that was going to be a part of the story but that's not where this went Um, like I said Wilford is not happy with him and takes a straight edge razor and gives it to him so that he can commit suicide uh, forces him to commit suicide basically Mm And then we see the dog come in and start licking up some blood out of the water. So this scene was, I think, the darkest one that we've seen so far. And I've got a lot of thoughts about it. Um, so again, we've, uh, we're going to be talking about suicide here. So just be aware of that. What, what my thought is... Um, and I, I've, I've dealt with this a lot um, in my work. I'm a clinical social worker. I own my own therapy practice. Um, I've unfortunately had people uh, that have committed suicide both in my professional life and in my personal life. Um, so it, it definitely hits close to home, um, as I'm sure it does for a lot of people out there. What I've learned is when when suicide is depicted in a responsible way through the media, um, it can actually uh, encourage people to seek help. It can help dispel myths um, and reinforce that there is hope. And all of these things help lead to um, lives possibly being saved. So I, I found I, I knew that there were some recommendations that uh, a bunch of different organizations had come together to make a few years ago about how to depict suicide in an appropriate conscious way. And so I found them on the actionalliance.org. And it seems like these are pretty across the board because a lot of these organizations came together to come up with these. So I say there's, there's eight of them. Some of them are pretty quick. Um, Let's just go through these and see how well Snowpiercer did with following the, the recommendations of how to depict suicide in a responsible way. The first very first recommendation is to convey that suicide is complex and often caused by a range of factors rather than just one single event. I think Snowpiercer definitely hit that one on the head because this was not a typical suicide. This was more of a murder. Um, so it's, this is a very complex issue. Would Kevin have done this if he didn't have Wilford telling him to do it? Um, it's suicide is very complex and it very rarely is due to one specific event. So I think that um, I think that they did that. The second guideline or recommendation is to show that help is available. Um, Whether that means showing that the character finds help available or literally showing help available at the end of the episode by displaying the National Suicide Prevention Hotline or something like that. Um, They didn't show anything about Kevin getting any help. um, So maybe that could have been a piece that was thrown into it. But again, he was so brainwashed and kind of held under Wilford's thumb up until the very end. I'm not sure what else his character could have done in that situation, um, that wouldn't have ended in him being killed. But the show did put the disclaimer or the, um, the message at the end of the episode about getting help. So they did that. The third recommendation is to portray characters with suicidal ideation who don't go on to die by suicide. Um, they haven't quite done that. They've definitely talked a lot about the despair, particularly of people in the tale. But correct me if I'm wrong, but I haven't heard of any people talking about how they've wanted to commit suicide and then ended up pushing through. So maybe that could be something that we look for is people that display um, the resiliency and you know they're able to seek help by support systems on the train and whatnot so that they um, don't end up meeting that and that outcome fourth one is portray everyday characters who can be a lifeline again that wasn't really part of this particular storyline just due to the circumstances of uh, the bathtub and being kind of trapped in there with wolford Wilford, excuse me, I have a friend named Wilford. And so I swear I'm going to mix up Wilford and Wilford. And if you hear me say that, I apologize. Blame it on my friend Brian and Amanda Wilford. Um, They're making me get all tongue tied there. The fifth one is avoid to avoid showing and describing details of the suicide method. They kind of get a big fat F there. I'd say maybe a D. Um, I would give, you know, 13 reasons why definitely gets an F in that area. Very, very graphic. Um, this one was pretty graphic. I say D because it probably could have been a little worse. Um, but it was still pretty graphic. Um, and definitely you weren't left wondering at all what, what happened there. Uh, pretty gruesome with the blood and then Jupiter coming in and, and everything like that. Uh, the sixth one is to consult with a suicide prevention, um, Suicide prevention experts and people with personal experience. I have no idea if the people that made Snowpiercer did that. Um, Maybe we can give them the benefit of the doubt, but I have no idea. Seventh one um, is to depict the um, grieving and healing process of people who lose somebody to suicide. So that will still be something that we'll have to look for uh, to see what happens in the future of who is going to be affected by Kevin's uh, death. And then the eighth uh recommendation is to use non judgmental language, which again we're not totally sure how they're going to handle that because this happened um kind of deep into the uh episode and I, as far as I know only Wilford is the one Wilford is the only one who knows about Kevin's death at this point. So, um We'll have to wait and see. Overall, I would give Snowpiercer, not that my opinion really matters or means anything, but in terms of following the guidance with um, the act, what, what the Action Alliance came out with, I'd give them maybe a B or B minus. Um, because like I said, there were some things that they did right, but other things that they really missed the mark on. Um, I've seen some movies and TV shows that they these organizations actually do go and give them an actual grade. So it'll be interesting to see if, uh, if there's any stories or uh, blogs written about that or anything like that. So there's our little story or our little segment about that and how I feel about that. Moving on. Deep breath after that. Zara and Josie. Oh my gosh. And then we moved on to this this thing. Oh my gosh. Okay. So then Zara is doing her little day shift as a candy striper or whatever she is. I don't know what she does. Um, but she's going and she's helping in the med unit. And she finds out that there's somebody in there who's kind of a Jane Doe kind of, um, she's covered head to toe in bandages. You can't really see her face. You can't really see any identifying characteristics of her. And so she looks at her and she says, Josie, and I just thought oh my gosh what the heck this is Josie and so then what does Zara try to do she tries to kill her she gets a bag an IV bag and she puts some medicine in it and she's going to kill her but then she kind of decides you know what maybe um maybe I'm not going to do that maybe I will let her live um but it was uh it was kind of an interesting a uh, twist, a big twist, I would say, probably the biggest twist of this episode. Uh, Josie might still be alive. Now we don't have any confirmation that it's her, but people online were talking about how there are certain animals who, um, who can, excuse me, come back to life and after being frozen. I did not know this. Uh, a lot of people online were talking about frogs, the frozen frog dynamic that a lot of frogs can be. Uh, frozen, you know, a majority of their body, a majority percentage of their body can be frozen, and then they're still able to come back to life. So I found a little website that had some other animals that can be frozen and come back to life. There's something called the Arctic woolly bear caterpillar that can be frozen up to seven times in its lifetime and then comes back comes back to to life and comes comes back as the arctic woolly bear caterpillar except for the last time the last time it does it it's a moth how cool is that how cool is that so the arctic woolly bear caterpillar has sugars in its blood and those sugars can act like antifreeze And that protects the cells and keeps it from dying. Um, Another animal that can do that, uh, that can be frozen, a majority of its body be frozen and still live, is alligators. Didn't even think about that. But they can stick their little snout outside of the frozen water and their body just is basically, you know, completely immobilized. But they're still able to breathe. Whereas humans, you know, we'd, we'd croak from doing that. So, you know... It's, it's just something to think about. Is there some kind of technology on this train where they're able to bring people back if they've been frozen? Or did she just find some kind of valve to shut, shut off the cold air that was coming in or find some way to block that thing that Melanie did when Melanie pulled all, out the the cold air, um, and had it coming into that room when they were in there together. I don't know. Um, but we'll just have to wait and see if it's really Josie. How did she live? Are they going to get her some of that goop so that she can heal and be super smoking hot again? I don't know. I don't know. Only time will tell. Next, we go on to Till and the pastor. Till goes to question this pastor. Um, about the assault and if he knows anything she finds out after doing a little digging that he's got some evangelical roots and we learn a little bit about till that her dad was i think she called him jesusy so i thought that was cool we get to learn a little bit about till and her background hopefully we'll learn a little bit more about that because i really like her character um Right around this time, Till starts kind of wondering if maybe Wilford, Wilford, oh my gosh, I'm going to keep saying that, if Wilford is behind the attack. Um, and we, we learn a little bit more about that as the episode goes on, kind of verifying that theory. We then see LJ and Oz, and they've been kind of bouncing around the train together now that uh, LJ isn't up in first class and Oz, I guess, isn't working anymore. I don't know. Um, there's not really any more brakemen. Um, so they're just kind of wandering around looking for things to do and they decide, why don't we try to go work for Terrence, the janitor? And he says, I don't really need you. And you two kind of come with a lot of bullshit drama that I'm not in the mood for. Um, but they're bored and they want to get in on, you know, his, his a lot of his shenanigans that he's got going on. And so he basically hands them a mop and bucket and says, well, then get to work. Uh, so we'll hopefully get to see how um, how the two of them handle that. That's kind of an interesting twist. I liked that. Zara then goes to talk to Miss Audrey in the night car um, because she is probably feeling some guilt over, you know, almost killing her ex-husband's new girlfriend who everybody thought was dead. Audrey tells her a very good quote. She says, quote, none of our hands are clean, darling. So maybe we'll find a little bit more about Miss Audrey's history, um, why she's so mopey all the time. We'll see. We'll see. At this point, Melanie realizes that they can't really study the snow that she captured from outside because her teenage daughter threw it in a fit of fury. So they release these balloon tracking devices up into the sky to look at the temperature. They've been tracking the temperature outside of Snowpiercer. You know, they, they, say that routinely when they're giving the announcements, the temperature outside is minus blah, 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 but they need to, to take a temperature higher up, you know, thousands, I'm guessing hundreds, thousands, I don't know of miles up into, well, probably not thousands. I don't know. They send these devices somewhere up into the sky. I don't know how far, um, to see what the temperature is compared to when they first started, um, snow piercer or when the earth first froze and they basically get the information that they need to confirm that yes the world is warming up at a faster pace than they had expected which is great news great news they might be able to get off the damn train so yay ruth they tell ruth and ruth decides to write another communique to wilford uh Inviting him to a summit in first class to discuss this uh, uh, discovery, this new scientific discovery. So Wilford is in. I mean, I think that they had him at first class. So that's basically what the rest of the episode is about. Before Wilford heads over to Snowpiercer for the summit, he has a little moment with Alex where they kind of play like a little hand game to see whose hand can be sturdier. Um, He tells her that he wants her to take the train from Layton because that would be kind of a serendipitous full circle type of thing. Um, And then she also takes a little metal piece. I couldn't exactly tell what it was from this point, but it was some kind of sharp metal piece. And tucks it away to take over to Snowpiercer. Then you see Zara and Josie again, Zara goes over to Josie and, uh, whispers in her ear, don't fuck this up for me, is it Josie. And then she leaves. So that's that. I don't really have anything else to say about that. Um, the next scene kind of gave me a little bit of goosebumps, and I'm not totally sure if it was in a good way. You see Wilford walking onto Snowpiercer in his giant fur coat, and uh, uh, he had a cane. I think did he have a cane? He looked like the the old guy with the monocle from from Monopoly. Um, just. Completely absurdly high class walking through all of these people that have struggled so much. He sees LJ. LJ comes up and gives him a big hug. They have kind of a moment about her parents because he obviously knew them intimately. He got a lot of money from them. Um, I wonder if later on down the road, if we find out that the Folgers are still alive, if we can look back at this and kind of see if Wilford was lying about offering her condolences or if he knew all along Um, because I can sense that Wilford is kind of a a good liar, obviously. Melanie then tells everybody the news. Wilford, you can see his wheels are just turning. Um, He wants to keep everybody on that train and he wants to keep everybody under his thumb and for everybody to be in his little class system. So this just throws a huge wrench in all the plans and he does not know what to do with himself. So he starts Attacking, basically calling Melanie a thief. Um, this is somebody who pretended to be me for a year. How can you even believe anything that she says? Da 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 da. And then a rebel. Um, so we've got a thief and a rebel. You guys are going to listen to a thief and a rebel. The rebel, obviously, being Layton. Um, then there's two scientists that were over on Big Alice, and they pipe up and say, uh, "Sir." We actually kind of believe that this is true. So then he decides, well, all right, I guess I'll, I'll go forward with this. Melanie says all hostility must cease. And in order for them to continue testing the weather to make sure that, you know, that it's going to be safe for humans to live on. And just so they can continue to research, Melanie needs to leave and go to some kind of station to, to monitor thing things. And so she's going to leave for about a month. And, uh, at this point was when it showed Alex getting really frustrated, um, maybe feeling like my mom is abandoned me, abandoning me again. And she's squeezing that little metal piece that she had and you just see blood dripping from her hand and she's, um, she's bleeding. So you'll, that, that comes into play in a couple minutes. Um, Till goes to see lights again and wants to verify um, which fingers were cut. And she finds out that it's her, her pinky and her thumb, I believe. So basically cut off the fingers so that her hand is permanently giving the W sign. As Wilford goes back, home after this summit you see some people flashing the w sign so just like you're taking your hand and tucking your pinky down with your thumb the w some people are flashing the w for him and saying wilford wilford um but as he's going through the tail it was silent you could have heard a a pin drop back there um the tailors are silent just giving him the death glare which i lived for that moment i thought that was pretty great at this point Zara decides. All right, I'm going to tell Layton um, that he needs to go see Josie. Um, that I think she's alive. And so he, she barely finished her sentence. It looked like before Layton was running the heck out of there to go see Josie, and it was a pretty heartwarming. Um, moment where he sees her and hopefully recognizes her. Hopefully there's some kind of moment we're able to to confirm that it's her. Um, and then this, the episode ends with Alex taking her bloody hand that she had cut and walking back on Big Alice and taking her hand and slapping it uh, on that door that goes from the tail to big alice Alice in a a bloody gesture, a bloody symbol um, of her own angst, and that was season two episode two. so I kind of talked a little bit as we went on about some of the questions that I have and some unanswered parts of this, but there's still a few uh, a few little unanswered things and some predictions so um. Like I said, I think Wilford is going to keep calling him King Layton. I think that's going to be a tactic that he uses. Uh, I think we're going to see a little bit more of a sneaky side of Alex. She's obviously been been brainwashed and has... uh, you know, some some work to do in that area. But she's also got her own mind in there. And she's got some wheels that are turning. And so you can see her sometimes give her mom a look like, oh, maybe you're not totally full of it. So I I think that we're going to see Alex being a, a huge key part of everything that's going to be going on this season. I think we're going to have more of the pastor. Um, That guy felt like there was more to his story. Also felt like there was there's more to Audrey. And I think we talked a little bit about this in the first episode of the podcast. Um, She's just got a very interesting aura about her. And I feel like there's more to her. I feel like there's some interesting dynamic between him and her and Wilford. We'll have to wait and see. There's also going to be an interesting kind of revelation when Ruth finds out that Wilford killed Kevin. Um, who knows? Will will that get her to kind of totally abandon her Wilford love, or will she take Wilford's side and you know say, "Well, Kevin must have done something really bad." I don't know. Um, What's Leighton's reaction going to be when he finds out that Melanie attempted to kill Josie? We thought that she killed her, but now she might be alive. So these kind of revelations, I look forward to seeing um, how they handle that. I think those are going to be big ones. Also, wondering where Miles and Miles is. Um, what What is going on with the children and where are they? Uh, don't really know if it's because martial law has been extended, if they're kind of um, stuck aside in a room somewhere if it's something just as simple as that but if it turns out Josie is alive I think that's going to be a pretty amazing reunion between Josie and Miles and Miles that gives me gooseys just thinking about that so our last segment here as we're wrapping things up is what is the random burning completely irrelevant question that Hillary has asked about the train this week and so this question I alluded to in my first episode that I, I wonder a lot about basic human functions on something like Snowpiercer. How would toilet paper work? How would basic hygiene things work? Um, How does their septic system work? Do they just flush it all out into the world because nobody's there to be upset about it? I, I don't know. So my question for this week is, how would they handle menstrual products? And for those of you listening who might be initially turned off at the thought of me discussing that for a few minutes, I would just encourage you to really kind of look inside and think about where those biases towards this topic come from. Our world is made up of 51% women. So over half, over half. I found a man named Mike Levine. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing his last name. And he created Uh, an app called clue that is one of the one of the most popular period trackers out there. And what this guy said is, periods happen to half of the world's population for half of their life. It's absurd not to talk about it. And you know what, as a woman, I would tend to agree. There's also a study that found um, that when we don't when women in the world don't have access to appropriate products, uh, pads, tampons, it can really affect their schooling. There was a a study by Oxford that found half of girls in Africa, the Middle East and Asia lack access to appropriate uh, hygiene products. And if you think about it, maybe some of this lack of access to products comes from the fact that so many people in the world aren't willing to talk about it. And so I know that I'm putting this into context of uh, in a silly little podcast that I do about a TV show on TNT. But if we try to kind of step outside ourselves and think about some of the bigger issues that um, are going on and some other people that might not have the privilege that we do, um, hopefully you will be on board to listening to what I have to say about this. Um, There's also a lot of myths about periods. Uh, some, Some men think that women can control it like they can control their pee and we can't. Um, Some people think it comes out of our urethra, and it doesn't. Um, Some people think that sanitary products are a privilege, but they're not. They're a basic human right. And so I got to thinking about this in terms of Snowpiercer because there is a movement to help women all around the world have... um, something called moon cups and these are made out of silicone or latex and they just look like a almost like a little funnel um, and they're inserted in the vagina and they capture the menstrual blood and they can be reused over and over and over again with proper sanitation and so i wondered if snow piercer was an actual thing i bet they would want all of the women to have a moon cup type of situation because it can be reused over and over again. You don't have to worry about pads and tampons and would they have a, a, you know, a separate section of their paper making and their cotton mill devoted to making those products. They don't have time for that. They do not have time for that. Um, I think there's also uh, new products out there that as a woman pushing 40, I wish that they'd had these products when I was a teenager, period underwear, um, where instead of having a pad in your underwear, um, you've just got like kind of a thick absorbent mesh material and you wash them, you know, regularly, and then you can also reuse those. And so those products are also being introduced to some third world countries now in the real world. Um, as a way to help girls be able to go to school, um, women to be able to work and not have this stigma and not have to spend so much money um, on these disposable products that are horrible for the environment and also really, really costly. So that's, that's my question about snow piercer. Uh, how would they handle period product? How would they handle periods? Basically? My thought is moon cups and period underwear. Um, would they have a period car in some cultures? You're, you're banned from associating with any people. If you're on your period, would they have a special section where you go to, if they didn't plan appropriately for this? Um, I don't know. I don't know. So there's my question. Feel free to give any additional thoughts or questions or ideas on the Facebook group. Just search for "brace in place," a snowpass, a snowpiercer podcast. So, I'm going to start something new, kind of inspired by uh, the challenged MTV. Challenge podcast that I guest host on sometimes, we try to always end the podcast with a quote from the episode. And so I'm going to start doing that. And so um, I wanted to find a Ruth quote, but she just wasn't really in this episode much. I wanted to find a Ruth quote since she's kind of the namesake of this uh, podcast. But uh, we'll have to settle for one from Miss Audrey. So From those of us here at Brace and Place Podcast, I wish you good night. And as Miss Audrey says, none of our hands are clean, darling.